Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Welcome, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is going to be joining us by phone here in a little bit. But in the meantime, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, TK Coleman. What's up, everybody? Malabama's here. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free. Singing along in the car, y'all. Advertisements suck. suck. That's exactly why we're doing this. Uh, We're going to talk about social media. Speaking of sucky advertisements, social media is one of the biggest purveyors of advertisements and advertisement clutter. So we're going to talk about social media clutter today because I don't think the social media is inherently a good or bad thing. I want to talk to you about that. So let's dive right into our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Michalina. Hello there, minimalists. My name is Michalina and I am 21 years old. I'm from New Jersey. And I also just wanted to add that I am a Patreon subscriber. I am an entrepreneur. I own three businesses. And as a minimalist, I know that they may seem like a lot, but believe it or not, they are symbiotic relationships with one another. Um, And I get a very large sense of clutter from social media. It does not add value to my life. Social media is a distraction. Um, And quite frankly, I feel as if it is a narcissistic playground and a petri dish for, um, you know, comparison and coming from a place of lack instead of a place of abundance. And um, as a business owner, I feel like if it's not on social media, it doesn't exist. So I have these two very polar opposite positions regarding social media. And I feel like I get overwhelmed with the amount of content that I should be putting out. And I refrain from putting anything out because I don't want to, um, I guess, add to the void. I don't want to be a contributor to a invaluable content situation. So I, my question is, what do you guys do as the minimalists to maintain a healthy relationship with social media? TK, I thought it'd be fascinating here to make a few distinctions. First off, I think McLean is onto something. She's spot on. Like anything useful, social media becomes clutter whenever it's a distraction. Yeah. And for her right now, it seems like it is clutter because it is a distraction. In fact, she said, it does not add value to my life and to my three businesses, which by the way, I own four businesses. It's okay to be a minimalist and have multiple businesses. Sometimes you just do that for accounting purposes. Other times it's like, well, I have several different ways that I earn a living or I have several different things that I'm passionate about. And that's totally fine. When you hear her question though, I can hear a lot of tension, a lot of discontent. She's upset about social media. She feels like I have to do it 
but she doesn't want to do it. And I was thinking some of the most successful businesses in the world don't really use social media. My computer's made by Apple and I was just on their Twitter account this morning and I went to their Facebook account. You know, they have zero posts on Twitter. Is that right? They have millions of followers, but zero posts. That's so awesome. And and the same is true with their Facebook. I went to their Facebook page, facebook.com slash Apple and zero posts. They do use Instagram, but it's just to post people's pictures. And so <laughs> it's a beautiful representation of what one of their products does. And so it is possible to use social media or to not use social media as a business. What are your initial thoughts, TK? Yeah, it sounds like she might be living in a world like many of us of pics or it didn't happen. I don't want to be on it. It's not necessary for my business, but pics or it didn't happen. How are people going to know that my business is doing well if I don't show them on social media? How are people going to know that I'm not happy or that I am happy if I don't post it on social media? And so sometimes we have to opt out of the story that says this is necessary just because everyone else is doing it. You know, it'd be one thing if your customers need to see you on social media and, and you're making yourself get on it begrudgingly. In that case, it'd be a simple solution like, all right. Hire someone else who loves doing that to play the role of giving your customers what they need on social media. But if your customers don't need it and you don't need it, who's to say that it didn't happen or it's not real if you're not on there? Here's the irony of The Minimalist. We hired someone a long time ago, Jessica, social Jess, to run our social media. And after she had a kid, she was on maternity leave, she came back and said, hey, I realize this isn't for me anymore. And now Professor Sean is handling our social media postings. Now, Professor Sean does not have any social media accounts of his own. And yet, as a business, we use social media as a distribution outlet. We take up little clips from this podcast. Danny cuts them up, makes them into TikToks and Instagram reels. We put them on Twitter and Facebook. I do agree with her sentiment, though. I don't want to add to, she said the void, but really she doesn't want to add to the noise. Mm. She doesn't want to be the person who's like, it's really noisy out there. You know what I'm going to do? I'm also going to start screaming into the void, into the, which is already filled with noise. And what I've mm. realized, though, is something that we do really well is we whisper into the noise. And there Ooh. are a few people who get really close and they, I want, I want that. I want to hear more of that. And you can ask Sean, you can ask Danny, whenever we are putting a clip out there, I don't care about the number of views. I'm always asking one question, how many people are sharing this? Because if someone's getting value from it, they don't just watch it. They share it with someone they love. Adding value is a basic human instinct. If I really if a clip really resonates with me, I'm going to send it to Mallory. I'm going to send it to TK. I'm going to send it to Jordan because I think they'll laugh at this, or I think it's educational or informational. I think they will find some value in it the same way that I found value on it. Yeah, that's so good. You know, it reminds me of hearing people say, we don't need another podcast. We don't need another book on that topic. We don't need another blog. And there's this idea that anytime you step up and use your voice or creatively express yourself, you're adding to the noise. But here's the thing. When you refuse to do something just because everyone else is doing it, you're being as much of a conformist as someone who chooses to do something just because everyone else is doing it. Because in both cases, you're orienting your life around nothing more than reacting to what other people do, right? So what makes you creative, what makes you a true nonconformist is you say, I am willing to do what brings me joy, whether everyone else is doing it or no one else is doing it. I'm doing it because it's the real me who shows up and does it. And so... If you get joy from social media or from doing something, 
doesn't matter that it's a fad. Do it because it's true to you. And if you don't, you can opt out. Absolutely. And here's the fascinating thing. You're already opting out of a lot of social media platforms. TK, did you know there are 128 popular social media platforms? Wait, 128? 128. I have a list of the 21 top social media sites to consider for your business in Uh 2023. This is an article from Buffer. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. But McLena, you've already opted out of most of these. Are you already on WeChat? Are you on QQ, which has more than half a billion active monthly users? I don't even know what QQ is. I'm not on it. Are you on Telegram? Are you on QZone, which also has 553.5 million monthly active users? That's more than Pinterest. That's more than Twitter. Are you on Discord? Are you on Twitch? Are you on Tumblr? Are you on Mastodon? Are you on OnlyFans, which is a social media network as well? (laughs) We opt out of these things all the time. And the question isn't, should I opt out of all social media? Which social media is going to add any value to my business? Mm. Here's the question I'm constantly asking myself. If we send a tweet, if we put up an Instagram post or a TikTok video or a YouTube video, does this add value? Will this add value to an audience? That's the only way I know I'm not adding to the noise. And are you able to use these platforms to add value. I'm not saying you should use it, but I'm also not saying you shouldn't use these platforms. I'd love to give you a definitive answer where it says, well, here are the three that you should use. Here's how frequently you should use them. But that might just be clutter for you. I think it's totally fine to be like Apple and post absolutely nothing and still have a successful business without it. They show that you don't have to have social media. The last question I'm going to ask myself here is, Who am I doing this for? Who did I build this business for? And does social media help me connect with those people? If so, wonderful. If it doesn't help me connect with those people, then it's a distraction. And if it is a distraction, then it's clutter. That's right, man. And sometimes it's hard to do certain things like get on social media because you might see other people doing things that seem vain to you and you're afraid of looking like them. But if you need to be on there, you can do the same what for a different why. Some people do things intentionally. Some people do it compulsively. Some people do it because they want to be seen and heard. Some people do it because there's something that they want to solve. You know what I mean? And so it it all just comes down to finding your own reasons for doing things. And when you figure out what works for you, don't get sidelined by debates about what everyone else ought to do. Just let other people do them and you do you. And the truth is it might change over time. The way I use social media today in 2023 is considerably different from how I use social media in 2008, which is when I signed up for Twitter. I barely use Twitter at all anymore, especially over the last year or so. I just haven't liked the changes that they've made to the platform. Not a political stance. I just literally don't like the way the platform is set up now. It's too reminiscent of of Facebook, which I've never really enjoyed much of either. I really used to enjoy Twitter. If you stop enjoying something but still continue to use it, it means it did add value, but now I'm clinging to something that is no longer adding value. And so I'm constantly reevaluating. Yes, we use social media. We have several million followers for the minimalists social media accounts on TikTok and Instagram and all of these other places. 
from a personal perspective, I don't use social media that much. And so from a practical side of things, I got something from our friend Seth Godin. He talked about how if social media is a distraction, this is one of those cases where it actually makes sense to have a separate device for your social media use. Having a tablet or a separate phone or whatever it might be just for posting on social media. And that way you can schedule those times out and know exactly, okay, whenever I'm on this device, that's my social media time. Mm. But removing the apps from the phone, I mean, that's been the biggest thing that's helped me is removing the social media apps from my phone. Danny did this recently with his own Instagram. And now if he wants to post something, he has to re-add the app it creates a little bit of friction. Now, if you're posting every day, that might become a problem and you need a separate device for that. But adding a little bit of friction into the process makes you realize whether or not this is adding value. Yeah, and you might want to add to that a little zero dark 30 where you say for 30 days, I'm going dark on social media, zero posts and see how it feels. Does everything in your life go to hell? Mm. Or do you say, ah, that felt good. You'll know. That happened with our YouTube channel recently. So in June, we put up no videos in June because we were publishing our, republishing our documentary, Minimalism, our first documentary. And so we said, I always want to clear the runway for this film. But we had more views in June than we had the previous six months with no other videos posted. Mm -hmm. And so you realize like, oh... I don't have to play this game. The content over everything, post, post, post. I need to remain relevant. Well, no, the best way to be relevant is to add value to your customers, listeners, readers, whatever they might be. One last thing I have for you here, TK, is this article from Forbes, 21 Ways to Grow Your Business without social media. We'll put a link to this in the show notes over at theminimalists.com. I'm just going to run through a few of these and you can comment if you'd like. Uh, number one is go networking, actually meeting people face to face. That's the original social yep. media. It's social without the media. Uh, create collaboration. So collaborating, say you're a musician or you're a business. Like We've done this with our coffee shop down in St. Petersburg, Florida, where we'll have other businesses that make food come in and collaborate on some food for the day. Uh, here are some other things. Start a newsletter. That's the nice thing about having your own website. So you, you can see how we start our website, theminimalists.com slash blog. It's called How to Start a Successful Blog Today. And I think this applies to any business. I think it's really important because you then own that asset. Yeah. Here's the truth. If Instagram decides to make some infuriating change like they did to us yesterday, they deleted nine of our videos yesterday or didn't really delete the whole video. They deleted the audio from the videos because we were using songs from their selected playlist, from their music library on Instagram. And they decided, oh, you can't have these songs anymore. Not only are we going to remove the song from your video, we're going to remove you talking from the video. And that created a significant headache. So social media can certainly cause a headache as well. But you know what didn't happen? No one went to our website and said, you can't have these words on the website. And so owning your own newsletter, owning your own blog, owning your own IP, your own platform is ultimately what I always want to have as the foundation. These other things for me, I don't create for Instagram. I don't create for TikTok. I use those platforms to further distribute what we are creating here at The Minimalists. That's right. And that's very entrepreneurial, that approach. You know, I'll just close by saying, look, obligations are relative. You only have to do something if you've committed yourself to a certain result or outcome. But if you can find a way to eliminate the need for that or live without it, 
then you've also eliminated the obligation. So what do you want to be on social media for? For some people, it's about being famous. For some people, it's about being profitable. For some people, it's about finding their tribe. And do you know all of those things can come apart? There are people that are social media famous that aren't making any money. There are people that are making a lot of money that aren't in social media famous. And there are people that have found their tribe and connecting with people and they're neither famous nor rich and they don't care, you know? So play the play by the rules according to the game. That's fun to you. I love that. What are you trying to accomplish? What is your outcome here? You don't have to be on social media just because everyone else is on social media. You also don't have to shun social media because that is the cool thing to do Mm -hmm. as well. However, understand that it is possible. Last thing I have here is from InStyle. It's 21 celebrities who don't use social media. You have Kira Knightley, Rachel McAdams, Emily Blunt, Emma Stone, Kate Winslet, Julia Roberts, Kate Moss, Chris Pine, and of course, Professor Sean Mihalik. <laughs> He's a talented novelist. He's written and published eight books, I believe, and he does not have any social media presence at all. So it is possible to do it either way. Am I adding value with my social media? That's always the question that I'm asking. Our next question is from Olivia. I'm Olivia from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'll be leaving for college in the fall, and this is the first time I have full creative control over the various components of my space. How can I best balance the urge to fill the space with items expressing my identity with the practicality of only bringing the essentials? Olivia, an empty room is filled with opportunity for intentionality. And so there's so much opportunity here. And she said the urge, I want to be careful about the urge because she knows, oh, I don't want to just haphazardly fill the space because whenever we enter a space, we start living there, we feel compelled to fill every corner, every nook, every cranny with more excess stuff. And so if you find, if you buy a 4,000 square foot home someday, Olivia, it's easy to tell yourself, I should fill this room or I should fill this area. This is what is supposed to be there. So the first thing to understand is you are complete in an empty room. Yeah, that's right. And focusing on the essential, it isn't just about focusing on those things that you absolutely need to survive. The essential is anything that I would die without having. Your creativity is essential. Your mental health is essential. And you can live or survive for a very long time without having the things that are essential to that. And so I would be very cautious about looking at the essential in terms of like, all right, I got the stuff that I need to keep breathing. What is necessary for your full expression of creativity and health? And make room for those things. And one way you can pace yourself to ensure that you're not doing it too fast is you can play a game where you say, all right, once every month I get to add something. And that way you're doing it slowly, methodically, and intentionally. And you can add time to it by saying, all right, once every other month, or you can say biweekly, you know, once every other week I'll do it. But either way, commit to a time. It's sort of like the casino technique where you're thinking ahead of time about what you want to spend, what choices you want to make so that you're not a victim of impulse once you're in the middle of the heat of the moment. So just think about that and say, once every month or once every other week, I'll add something that I like. And you start with the basics. You're bringing up a good point. The best way to declutter a space is to not clutter it in the first place. 
And you do that through the intentionality we're talking about right now. In the Minimalist Rule Book, which you can download over at theminimalists.com, there are 16 rules for living with less. And one of those rules is the no junk rule. And basically, it goes to show you that everything you own and also everything you are going to purchase, Olivia, can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential. We all have the same basic essentials. So it's food, shelter, clothing, education, vocation, transportation. We all have similar essentials. They look different for each of us. But then we have the second category that I think is equally important for making your life beautiful. It's non-essentials, but value-adding non-essentials. I like that. And that is key. Yes, Olivia, you can move into this new apartment with no furniture. You can just throw a mattress on the floor. But maybe you're missing out on the things that might add value. But the only way to do that is to bring it in slowly. Because you could snap your fingers and the place will be complete But as soon as it's complete, it will be incomplete because it'll be something else that you want or something you want to remove. So the space itself will be ever-changing. You don't have to look for it to be complete. And this is something I struggle with personally. I want my space to feel finished. But as soon as it feels finished, I like tearing it down and starting over. And that's part of the fun of the process. Unfortunately, most of the things we own or we acquire fit in that third category. It's not essential. It's not non-essential, but value-adding. It's junk. It's just stuff that gets in the way. Things we bought because we were supposed to do it, or there was a decorative trend going on at the time, or someone gave me something, or, you know, I feel like I'm, I need to have this just in case I have the company that comes over or whatever. That's just junk. It gets in the way. Yeah. Just go on a date with your new place before you get married to any ideas about what ought to be in it right? Sometimes we get a new place and we just start thinking, oh, I need to put this here. I need to put that there. And we go into design mode. And it's like, why marry any of those ideas? You've got time. Mm. There's nothing about two months from now that will stop you from adding that piece. You know, go on a date with your place. Enjoy the simplicity. If we're going on a first date, we don't, we don't propose then, right? We go out, we have a cup of coffee or we have a nice lunch and we just get to know each other. You can do that with your place as well. Just get to know it. And sometimes the place, the energy of the place, the space of the place will speak to you and give you ideas that you couldn't know when you were analyzing things from the outside looking in. It'll say, ooh, you know what feels good? A picture here. You know what feels good? Something there. Let the place speak to you. And when that place speaks to you, you'll start to understand what your aesthetic is. You're probably at a a place right now where you have never been fully in charge of your own aesthetic. And I can tell you now at age 42, my aesthetic preferences are much more refined and they're much more solidified than when I was 22. Mm. And they're appreciably different now because before I liked what other people liked. And the question I always ask myself now is, do you like this or did someone tell you to like it? Was it an advertiser that told you, oh, you're supposed to own this type of kettle or this type of shirt or this cut of jeans or this silverware or this mug or your couch is supposed to look this way or your window dressings need to look like this. Did I like that or was I simply told to like that? And if I'm told that I like that, then I don't actually like it. It's someone else handing their preferences to me and me picking up their preferences, not knowing whether or not I actually like it. It took me years, one might even say decades, to untangle from other people's preferences Mm. so I could figure out what actually 
resonated with me? What was calming for me? What provided tranquility in my space? Later today on the private podcast, we're talking to Jordan No More. We're going to do a home tour, and he is a minimalist with a maximalist love for various colors, miscellanea, eccentricities, and it's beautiful. And if I just picked up his stuff, I'd be miserable. But if I forced my preferences onto him and his space, I think he'd be miserable too. When I was little, we went on this family vacation and we were like in this gift shop and I saw this poncho style hoodie that just looked so cool to me. And I begged my dad for it. He's like, no, I'm not getting it. And I begged and pleaded and he finally got it for me. And then I wore it to school. All the kids made fun of me, man. They all made fun of me. And so I stopped wearing it. And then at that time, Beverly Hills 90210 was hot. And there was an episode where Luke Perry's character, Dylan, he wore that same type of sweater. And maybe like a few weeks later, you saw all the kids in school wearing those sweaters. And I, I remember just being like little Steve Urkel, like, wait a minute, I had the idea first. And everyone's like, yeah, get out of here. No, you didn't. And I was like, man, never again, never again do I choose my tastes for what other people will love or hate. I, I choose to trust my taste. I learned a hard lesson about that. I thought you were going to say you did your hair like Luke Perry's. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get the transplant, but it didn't take, man. Olivia, this is your space. Congratulations. You're stepping into a blank canvas of sorts. And this blank canvas doesn't mean you just want to go in there and throw a bunch of paint on it haphazardly and other people hand you their paint and now you got to throw their paint on there as well. You're going to end up with something that you don't enjoy. What do you enjoy? What do you value? Do you value peace and calm? What activities do you want to do within the space? How do I plan on using the space? Instead of trying to cram a life into the space, you can build the space around your life. We have another question here. This one is from Brittany. Hi, minimalists. I'm Brittany calling from Roy City, Texas. I've been minimalizing for years now and have gotten quite good at letting go of stuff. But I've always been more attached to the house than the items in it. We recently purchased some land to build a new home on, but I find myself dreading the day we put our current home on the market. We have so many memories here that the idea of leaving it behind makes me sad to the point that I can't see ahead to happy memories somewhere else. How can I learn to let go of my house? So, Brittany, you've gotten really good at letting go of stuff, except for one type of stuff. Your home is a material possession, and it might be the most expensive, the most uh, large, the most grandiose, the most complex material purchase that you own. And that is why you've tied up all of these memories in your home. Of course, your memories reside in you, not inside your things. We talk about that on the show. We've talked about that for years because that was my aha moment when I was letting go of my mom's stuff. In our last Netflix film, we depicted this, but I realized oh, I'm not letting go of her memories. Her memories are inside me. Now I can take a picture of a few of these things. And certainly if I'm in Brittany's shoes, I'm going to take a picture of the things that I want to trigger the memories that are inside me. But also realizing that by letting go of the home, I'm not letting go of any of the memories. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to say to Brittany here is that one of the most important aspects of healing is giving yourself permission to let go in your own way and in your own pace. Everybody's got opinions about how to grieve. 
but there is no one right way to grieve. Some people cry. Some people don't shed a tear. Some people get over it in a month. Some people take a year. Some people take longer. And there's always someone out there that's like, hey, get over it already. You ought to be grateful. But grateful isn't an ought. It's something that you've got to allow yourself to ease into through a genuine sense of appreciation for what's there and appreciation for where you've come from. And so give yourself the space. Sometimes we're doing just fine, even when we're not doing fine, because we're healing according to a pace that's healthy for us. And so it's okay to have a hard time letting this place go. And it's okay to not be finished with that process. You're still living there. You're still dealing with the transition. This is perfectly fine. One thing I would say is that it's possible to make this an opportunity for connection. As you're getting ready to leave this place, there's plenty of time for family at dinner time to get together and start talking about memories. What's your favorite memory from this room? What's your favorite memory from this neighborhood? What's your favorite memory with me? What's your favorite memory with him? There are an indefinite number of options for the kinds of questions we can ask about memories. And even though our memories are not in our things, but in ourselves, by playing a game like this, we can solidify those memories. We can crystallize them and cause them to become more vivid to our imagination and have an easier time carrying them with us. You're talking about a few things there. One is, I love what you talked about. Gratitude is not a a forced thing because forced gratitude is not actually gratitude at all. But the little experiment you were just doing, the exercise of congregating with people and discussing these memories, that's a way to bring that gratitude forward without forcing it. You're simply having a conversation about the space. And there are artistic ways to capture that as well. Maybe you're a photographer. Maybe you're a painter. Maybe you're a writer and you just want to write a quick paragraph about each room to create crystallize it and not force yourself into gratitude, but create the space for gratitude and also creating the space for letting go. Because letting go is not something we do. It's something we stop doing. We stop clinging. And part of that is clinging to the way we wish things were. Hmm. Because it's not possible for you to move forward to the new home. Yeah. If you don't let go of this home, you can't make room for the future if you're stuck in the past. That's right. And I like something that you've said about writing before. We we have these thoughts and these feelings and these convictions, but we often don't know what they are until we put them into words. There's something about externalizing these intangible sensations in the form of the written word that makes them real and concrete in an entirely different way. And that also allows us to understand them at a deeper level. And that's something we can do with our memories as well. And you're moving towards something new. I think quite often one easier way to let go is to be exciting or enthralled, excited or enthralled by the thing yeah. to which you are running. You're not running away from something. You're running toward this new future. There's a new home. There's a new career. There's a new material possession. Whatever it might be, I'm letting the old thing go, not just for the sake of letting go, because simply casting off material possessions or shunning material possessions is another type of consumerism. It's like a reverse consumerism. If I just get rid of everything, then I'll be happy. Mm. Well, no, I can let go of these things simply so I make room for wherever I am going, for this new home, for this new city, for this new family adventure, for my new life. I'm going to have to let go of what was in the past. Something that's helpful for me is remembering previous times when I've had difficulty letting go and I turned out to be happy, right? So 
moving to California created a lot of difficulties that made me say, man, why is this so hard? But then I thought about how when I left California the first time and moved to Charleston, it was even harder. And when I thought about that, I says, wait a minute, I'm doing way better with this move than I did with the last one. So sometimes recency bias can make us feel like our current set of problems are the most difficult it's ever been. But when you look back, you say, oh, wait a minute, I've overcome and adjusted to and dealt with things that are much more difficult than this. And I'm actually doing really well and showing a lot of signs of growth and wisdom and maturity here. Okay, this is all right. And this is going to be all right. I remember when I first learned to drive a car, it was really difficult for me. And I'm like messing up the gas and the brake. And and now it's second nature. I would never struggle with hopping in the car and driving to the movie theater or to the grocery store. But Initially, it was really difficult for me because I wasn't used to performing that act. And I think letting go is very similar. As we practice letting go, and it sounds to me like Brittany's practiced letting go of a lot of smaller things, this is just part of that practice now. You're letting go Mm. of a bigger object. It's a more difficult object for you to let go of. And there'll be some lessons from this. And it doesn't mean that you won't miss it. Or, But by the way, there's nothing wrong. We pathologize everything. There's nothing wrong with missing mm-hmm. an old house or an old lover. There's nothing wrong with missing an old t-shirt or an old car you used to own when you were a teenager. There's nothing wrong with missing the books that you've let go of. Missing, that's a part of the grieving process. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it just shows us that we have that emotion. There's something that is being pulled to the forefront. And instead of trying to shun it and bury it and say, I shouldn't miss these things, I can look at it. And the paradox of that is by actually witnessing the missing of something, over time, I, I cease to miss it as much because I actually see it for what it is. Yeah, missing something or someone is a manifestation of our appreciation for the past. And sometimes we can reframe those moments where we say, man, I really miss my old neighborhood or I'm thankful that I got to live in a neighborhood like that. Man, I really miss my old friends. I'm thankful that I've got people like that in my life. Man, I really miss my old routines. I'm thankful for those routines that I had and the foundation they laid for me to live the healthy life that I'm living now. Everything and everyone that you miss is a manifestation of your appreciation for something beautiful or good in your past. And that's an opportunity to bask in that gratitude. So good. Another question here. This one's from Ivan. Hey, Josh and Ryan, this is Ivan from Denver. I just want to say thank you for all the work you guys have done and continue to do. I'm calling because I have a question regarding what to do with military gear. used to be in the service, and after getting out, I have tons of uniform and gear. I just have very little use for these days. I want a good place to donate them, and I just and I'm wondering if you or any of your listeners know of such a great place besides dumping them at Goodwill. Thank you very much, and aloha. Bye. Ivan, thanks for your question. I pulled up an article here. This one's from thesoldiersproject.org. It's called "What to Do with Old Military Uniforms." I'm going to go beyond uniforms here as well, and I think we can tie this in for other folks who may not have old mil- military uniforms, but this will still apply to their lives more broadly. And so, here are five things you can do with old military uniforms. First thing is obviously you can donate it, and there are a bunch of private shops, uh, private companies. There are also museums as well. There's a museum 
museum I have here. I'll put a link to this in the show notes also. This is from the Army Air Corps Library and Museum. So they will take, here's what they say. Do you have military memorabilia? So not just uniforms, but any memorabilia that you're not sure what to do with and maybe your children don't want it? Then let us help you preserve this history by donating these items to the Army Air Corps Library and Museum. We are looking for uniforms, medals, ribbons, equipment, personal items, paperwork, photos, books, and much more. What you're realizing here, Ivan, is these items are useless for you, but a useless item becomes useful in the right hands. And so instead of you needing to find a use for every single one of these items or for your uniform, you can allow some other place to do that. And that's why I love places like Goodwill or local thrift shops, because what you're doing is you're taking that burden of, oh, what if I had to find a home? I want to donate a thousand items. I have to find a home for all 1000 items. I'm just going to throw my hands up and say, forget this. I don't want to do it. But if you can offload that burden to a professional organization that will then gladly pick up the burden and find new homes for each of these items. Wow, I think that's pretty amazing. The second thing you can do is you can sell. Obviously, there are certain things that you can sell um, that you are, you know, there are a lot of like uh, uh, secondhand stores that sell old military uniforms, especially when they're fashionable among certain sects of people. So you can definitely sell. You can hop on eBay and say, okay, is anyone else selling something really similar to this? As long as you're allowed to sell it, I'm assuming uh, that you're allowed to sell it. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be asking this question. But yeah, I, I, I guarantee you, instead of donating it, there are going to be some of the things that you're willing to sell. For me, hmm. I had a threshold. If For me now, it's 100 bucks. So it used to be when I was getting out of debt, it was $20. Anything I can sell for more than $20, I'm going to take that money and put it toward yeah. my debt. And I sold thousands of items on eBay, Craigslist, and other apps just to get rid of those those things. Uh, third thing you could do is repurpose. So uh, if you have time in your hands, you can turn and transform your fabric scraps into different items. Doesn't sound like that's something that Ivan wants to do, but I also always think about that option, repurposing the things we want to let go of. It's getting in the way right now in its current state. Can I repurpose it? Simple question. Quite often the answer is no, then I can still donate it. I can still sell it. And number four, consider preserving. Uh, yeah, you can hang it up on a shelf or preserve it somewhere in your home. Or again, you can rely on some sort of museum or expert to preserve it for you. And fifth and finally, and I think this is just a fact we have to talk about. Fifth is dispose. If there's nothing else you can do with something, it's okay to get rid of it, recycle, or eventually trash it if you've tried all of these other means. Because whether or not it's rotting away in a dump or it's rotting away in your home, I'd rather I'd rather at least get it out of my house and get it out of the way if I've tried everything else. Yeah, you know, the, the evolution of recycling is an interesting concept because when we think about the word recycle, we imagine these bins that have logos on them and we go dump stuff in them and then those things disappear. Or maybe someone destroys them or it gets rid of them in an eco-friendly manner. And we forget that recycling is something that has existed as long as human beings have existed. And long before it was a brand, it was a simple idea like everything that was useful to you is useful to someone else, even if in a different way. So to recycle is to continue that cycle or process of using material goods for the purpose of creative expression. And when you're completing a journey, 
there's likely someone else who's just beginning the journey that you're finishing and they might be able to benefit from those things. So the distance that we have between us and the recycling process causes us to look at it in such an abstract way and we have a hard time because we don't realize how much we are gifting other people with the tools they need to become fuller versions of themselves. I'm going to put a link to both of those articles in the show notes so you have access to those. If you have old medals or uniforms, anything from the military that you want to donate, there'll be a link in the show notes for the soldiersproject.org, what to do with old military uniforms, as well as the Army Air Corps Library and Museum. Let's move on to some social media questions. Alabama, it looks like uh, Facebook. Erica has a question for us. Has anyone else noticed that with simple living comes an increase in crime? By investing in better quality and less consumption, I have found it makes me more of a target for theft, stalking, and harassment. I noticed around the start of the pandemic, and it has been a constant scenario since. You know, every life change carries with it the potential for ridicule, but judgment alone is a terrible reason to avoid change. And I would say the same thing is even true. Uh, I think about when I first embraced minimalism and I told people that I was a minimalist, I got a lot of scorn, a lot of judgment from folks. Mm. And at first it made me want to not say it, right? And then when I didn't want to say it, I also didn't want to make these life changes for fear of what other people might think of me. And then I realized like, oh, wait a minute. Their judgments are just a projection of their own insecurities. Their insecurities are coming to the surface when they are criticizing minimalism. It's not that all criticisms are projections of insecurities necessarily, but what I'm learning about the person who's criticizing my own minimalist journey is they have a problem or maybe it wouldn't work for them. That doesn't mean that it wouldn't work for me. And this question seems adjacent to that. But it seems to me that you are conflating causation and correlation. Hmm. Maybe some things have happened in your life recently that correspond with the fact that you've simplified your life. I could tell you in my own life, simplifying means I have far fewer things that you can steal, far fewer things that you could take from me. And therefore, I think I'm less of a target for what crime, uh, increase in crime. But she said, by investing in better quality and less consumption, I found it makes me more of a target for theft, stalking, and harassment. Yes, yeah, some people might harass you in the sense that they're making fun of you or judging you. I can't imagine simplifying my life makes me a target for harassment. I'm going to grant the assumption and say, adding value always brings new kinds of risk. Anytime you take a step in the direction of something that brings you joy, well, there's going to be some negative possibility that comes along with that. And part of making the choice is deciding, can I live with that? Is that a cost I'm willing to pay? Do I really want to give my heart to this person and fall in love? Do I really want to have children? Do I really want to buy a house? Do I really want to live in an apartment? Do I really want to buy that car? Do I really want to move to that city? Everything that you do is going to bring a set of problems that you wouldn't have if you said no to that choice. And so saying yes to every possibility also means saying yes to a set of problems that are unique to that possibility. And so the existence of these problems is not some sort of argument that we shouldn't choose what feels like a hell yes. It just means we have to be intentional and we should never choose anything 
based on a fairy tale that says, this is going to be the solution to every problem. This is going to be the end all be all of existence. And that's the lie of consumerism, that if you buy this or you do this, all questions will be answered and you will be complete. Nothing can deliver on that promise. And as long as you know that, then you can choose wisely. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're saying, I'm refusing to make a change in my own life because of some hypothetical fear. And But by the way, that's why we always refuse to make change. We're afraid of the pain or the disconnection from our community. We're afraid of uncertainty. And therefore, we stay where we are. Even though we know where we are is making us miserable or at least is not providing the space for the joy that we want in our lives, what happens? I stay there because it's a little bit more comfortable and changing, moving to wherever I'm going to go is is so uncomfortable. And then we start telling ourselves stories like, oh, I'm being harassed. Okay, you might be being harassed. And that's an awful thing if someone mm. is harassing you. But how do I define that? I mean, as soon as we became the minimalists, yeah, we get harassed all the time on social media. People say the craziest things to us and occasionally even DM me like psychotic things. Yeah. And I'm willing to let that go because I realize that is a byproduct of doing what we do. As you said, adding value to other people's lives or adding value at all comes with it some additional benefits, but also some additional downsides, some downsides you may have not anticipated. No, I don't see, this is the first time I've been doing this for 13 years. I've never had anyone write in or call into the show who has said, I've simplified my life and now I'm a greater target for harassment, for theft, etc. Yeah, this might be one of those scenarios. I'm I'm not doubting that it's true, but I'm saying this is a rarity. We're in a unique situation here that someone gets to ask this question. I was thinking a lot about privilege recently and not in the sense that it's used on social media where people are talking about, you know, what to do with your privilege, but what an amazing privilege I have that I even get to consider a question Mm. like this. I get to simplify my life and recognize that with all the upsides, there are some downsides as well. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to encourage you to do if you're up for it and you're listening to us right now is send us a message with some specifics on how certain risks have increased for you. And I love the opportunity to either give some constructive tips or even just source our community for some ideas. Because at the end of the day, if you feel like you are at risk, I can give logical arguments for why that's a natural thing to be expected, but the risk is still real. And I think it's useful to be able to help people cope with contextualized risk in a way that optimizes for a healthy life. I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel good. I want you to feel at peace with the lifestyle that you've chosen for yourself. Uh, So I'd love to hear some examples and, and be able to kind of weigh in. Yes. And that risk quite often is amplified by the worry or the story that we tell ourselves about the risk. There could be a little risk of me climbing up that one stair right there. But if I tell myself it's insurmountable, (laughs) I'm going to trip every single time. At some point, I'm never even going to try to go up that one step because the story I've told myself is much greater than the risk 
itself. So yes, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Or if you want to call in uh, or just send a voice recording right from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com, you can let us know. You can, If you have a minimalist insight or tip about this from your own perspective, we would love to hear it. Our next question is from JR on Instagram. I gave everything I had in a relationship only to have the other person give up without saying anything and leave me feeling broken. The price of having to do it all again doesn't seem worth it if you know the next person could just blow it up too. What do you do when you have no more trust to give? How do you get that back? So the cost of love is vulnerability, but the cost of not loving is a hollow, vacant existence. And as soon as I realized that, it automatically reoriented my view toward the world to be less cynical and and much more understanding that everyone is in a different space from where I am. I think it's easy to devolve into cynicism here. And I've got something I want to read about cynicism in a moment. But what what words of wisdom do you have for JR? Mm. First, I would find a way to look back on my past and learn from that failed situation without blaming myself for it. Sometimes people seem to change on a dime without saying anything, but that's only because they didn't verbalize what was going on. Sometimes people have a way of signaling, my heart is no longer in this. I'm, I'm mentally no longer present. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere else, even though my body is here. And it can be useful to go back and, and learn how to see those indicators and red flags not for the basis of saying, oh, it was my fault, I should have seen it, but for the basis of saying, okay, I can be a little bit smarter next time. I don't have to blame myself for what happened in the past, but wisdom is the ability to extract lessons from that so that when I make decisions in the future, I'm able to notice things that I previously could not see. I'm able to hear things that aren't verbalized because I'm able to listen to the different facets of a person that's speaking to me. That's one thing that I would say. I also think about love in this sense. You can give love without needing to get it, without needing to be in love, to show up in a loving way. And I'm not prescribing this. I want to be clear about that. But it is possible to show up and be the most loving version of yourself. There's this old parable that I love. I forget who it's from. Maybe, well, no. Uh, J. Krishnamurti, I'm not sure. But there's this old parable that a man who's walking to work every day and he buys a newspaper from the same newsstand. And every day he walks up there real chipper. Oh, hey, how's it going to the guy who's working there? And the guy who's there is just rude to him. He barely pays him any attention. But the guy every day is still kind and loving and caring and thanks him for his time and thanks him for the newspaper. And he says this to someone at work when he gets there and he's got the newspaper and he goes, why do you always stop there? There's that guy who's a real jerk who works there. It's a newsstand two blocks over. He said, why would I let someone who's a jerk dictate my route to work? And to me, that made a whole lot of sense because we are often changing the way that we act within the world because of the way that we were mistreated or we perceive we were mistreated. And I think that's where JR is right now. Is like, it just didn't work out. And it's easy for me to blame the other person. And then it's easy for me to become the cynic who just says, oh, this is, this is never going to work. 
It didn't work this time. It didn't work three other times. I've tried everything. Have you really tried everything? Or did you try three or four things and you tried them over and over and over again? The definition of insanity. And that has caused a level of nihilism or cynicism. And so TK, my favorite Rob Bell book is a book called How to Be Here. And it's not my favorite just because the minimalists are mentioned in the book, but because I... I really enjoy his perspective on cynicism in this book. So I want to read from two passages, and then we can talk about it. This is from page 33. We'll put a link to this book in the show notes as well. This is called Bored. Boredom is lethal. Boredom says there's nothing interesting to make here. Boredom reveals what we believe about the kind of world we're living in. Boredom is lethal because it reflects a static, fixed view of the world, a world that is finished. Cynicism is slightly different from boredom, but just as lethal. Cynicism says there's nothing new to make here. Often, cynicism presents itself as wisdom, but it usually comes from a wound. Cynicism acts as though it's seen a lot and knows how the world works, shooting down new ideas and efforts as childish and uninformed. Cynicism points out all the ways something could go wrong, how stupid it is, and what a waste of time it would be. Cynicism holds things at a distance, analyzing and mocking and noting all the possibilities for failure. Often, this is because the cynic did try something new at some point, and it went belly up. He was booed off stage, and that pain causes him to critique and ridicule because there aren't any risks in doing that. If you hold something at a distance and make fun of it, then it can't hurt you. And he goes on to talk about despair, but I'll leave it there for a moment. What are your thoughts on that level of, of cynicism? Yeah, I'm 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 deeply empathetic because it's a it's a temptation for all of us, right? Um part of part of living involves being being broken, being vulnerable. You know, I've I've picked up a lot of books in my life with the um expectation that it would deliver on some really high sounding promises only to find out that it wasn't as good as I thought. I've dated some people only to end up being high and dry. I've started a business before that I thought was going to change the world and create a lot of wealth for me and a lot of other people and it bottomed out. And so nevertheless, the the joy of reading is worth the risk of picking a bad book. The joy of falling in love, that's still worth the risk of getting my heart broken. The joy of entrepreneurial freedom, that's still worth the risk of knowing that my business might fail. And the way out of that despair is to say, it's not a guarantee that's going to give me my security. It's the inner knowing of what's worth pursuing, what's worth fighting for, even though I might get my butt kicked by what I pursue. Yeah. He goes on to talk about despair here. And then there's despair. While boredom can be fairly subtle and cynicism can appear quite intelligent and even funny, despair is like a dull thud in the heart. Despair says nothing that we make matters. Despair reflects a perversive dread that it's all pointless and that we are all, in the end, simply wasting our time. Boredom, cynicism, and despair are spiritual diseases because they disconnect us from the most primal truth about ourselves, that we are here 
All three distance us from and deaden us to the questions that the blinking line asks. He's talking about this metaphor of the blinking mm-hmm. line, of the, the blank page, the, the blank canvas. How are you going to respond to this life you have been given? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to make here? That's so good. There's this other section in the book here called Reconnected. This is still from How to Be Here. And here's a little excerpt from it, also talking a bit about cynicism, but I thought this applied perfectly to JR's question. And then we get into it and we discover that some people can't be trusted. And we spend a tremendous number of hours on distracting details. And sometimes we pour our energies into a particular project or person and it fails apart, falls apart. And we're left wondering, why is this so difficult? Your business partner takes the money and leaves town. The kid you raised wants distance from you. The student you've been teaching decides to drop out. The people you've been leading criticize you. No one gets a free pass from heartbreak, discouragement, and the dull, weary thud that comes from asking, did I waste my time? Over the years, that initial energy and enthusiasm can easily dissipate as life beats you up. You find yourself growing cynical. You lose your passion. This is why craft is so vital. You can find the craft in whatever you do. It's in there somewhere. If you run a gas station or you do people's taxes or manage a call center, ask yourself what the craft is in that work. Too many people have a job and they get a paycheck and that's it. Few things will inject more meaning and even at times joy into your work than seeing yourself working your craft. Whatever it is that you do all day, do you see it as craft? Seeing your work as a craft rescues you, craft centers you, craft reconnects you. The joy of waking up and having something to give yourself to, that's what matters. That's where the joy is. That's where this life is. And so JR, the question isn't, can I be in love again? But can I show up with joy? Can I show up with love and see the other person or other people for who they are? There's a craft in that as well. Yeah. You know, as, as someone who's going through physical therapy now from my, my accident, I can say that rebuilding trust is similar to rebuilding the body. You take small steps and between giving up and going all in, you recognize the power of just honestly acknowledging where you are right now in your wounded state. And you do little things every day that can help you heal and get better. Instead of saying, oh man, I'm just going to jump back into playing basketball like I used to, because you know how good I was at that. (laughs) You say, well, I'm not there yet. I just got to do these arm exercises, you know, for 10 minutes every day. And you get there. And in a similar way, you know, when it comes to love, don't force yourself to say, all right, I just got to pretend like this doesn't, this didn't happen. I just got to get off the mat and go fall in love again. Take your time, be present with your pain and let that pain teach you and be honest with other people not necessarily giving them details about everything you've been through, but be honest with them about what you're willing to take on and what you're willing to commit to at the stage that you're at. Go slow. That's how you rebuild anything. Another question from Twitter. This one's from Natish. 
How can you thrive as the sole minimalist in a family that believes in maximalist principles? So stating your favorite color is not a judgment about the value of other colors. And I find that to be really important. If your favorite color is blue and everyone else in your family really loves red, it doesn't mean that you're right and they're wrong and they're wrong and you're right. It just means that you have different preferences. Now, it is true that maybe your family would benefit from having a more minimalist life. They would benefit from this preference. But forcing a preference on to someone, because it is like forcing your favorite shirt onto someone. Yes, you know what? TK might look great if I uh, gave him the blue or the purple shirt I was wearing a few episodes ago for episode 400. He might look great, but if he doesn't feel great in it, then I'm forcing it on him. Then we're both going to feel bad because now he dislikes it, I dislike it. And so I want to point something out that often happens in a scenario like this. You have a family, especially if you live with the family, but it can be distant family who lives elsewhere as well. What happens is we get annoyed by their preferences. And then my default state is to then annoy them further with my preferences. And it becomes this arms race of annoyance. I'm annoyed by you, so I'm going to annoy you back. And now you're annoyed by me, so you're going to annoy me back. There's this constant escalation that is totally unnecessary. And so the best thing I've ever done with respect to minimalism is never proselytize it. I'm now out there saying, hey, look at me, I'm a minimalist. And you should become a minimalist too. And here are the seven ways you can do it. Here's how you get your certification. Here are the things you should get rid of. Here are the things you should buy to organize. Here are the things that you should declutter. Here are the things going forward, the brands that you should have. Here's the car that I want you to own. Here's the job you should have. Because now I'm inflicting the other people with my preferences, creating wounds in the relationship with my preferences. It's okay to have your preferences without needing them to have your same preferences. Yeah. You know, a lifestyle isn't really a lifestyle if everyone else needs to live it in order for me to be able to live it. A worldview isn't really a worldview if everyone in the world needs to first have my view in order for me to have it. And so sometimes when we find beliefs or practices or strategies that work for us, we treat it like an MLM. Oh man, I found something that's really good. It's going to change my life if my entire family buys in. And if they don't, all of a sudden, this thing that I'm bought into is actually empty and worthless. Is that what you really think of the things that you're doing? If the things you're doing can't work unless everybody in your life buys in, that's probably a clue that that thing is worth abandoning. The, The way it works is you say, I found something that makes me a better me and I trust myself to work out the details of living that out, fleshing that out in a world where everyone else doesn't have to think the same. So for Natish, when we think about living with someone or being friends with someone, it doesn't have to do with forcing them to be more like me, but tolerating their preferences, eventually accepting their preferences, respecting their preferences, Unless they're doing something that's harmful, obviously. You don't respect something that's harmful, but that's not what we're talking about here. And eventually, eventually, you can get to a point where you actually appreciate their differences. The fact that they enjoy some. We're, later in the episode, we're going to go through Jordan's home. And I don't just tolerate the fact that he has a completely different set of tastes from me. 
I don't even just respect it. I really appreciate how much joy he gets from that. Or Professor Sean, he has this pin collection that he really gets immense joy from. Now, for me, if I wanted to to heap my preferences on him, I said, well, this is actually the only pin you should use here. It's this Pilot G207. This is the perfect pin. Any pin besides this is not minimalist. I don't sanction it. And you're not allowed to like it. And what am I doing there? I'm extracting all of the joy that he gets out of that. And the truth is, while his pins would get in the way for me, they would be clutter for me. He gets an immense benefit from them. He gets to experience them in a way that I don't experience them. Instead of just tolerating that, I love that about his experience with those. And I wouldn't want to deprive him of that. Yeah. You know, when, when it comes to introducing changes to your life and you're living in a space where other people don't think and act like you, you have to start in the short term by focusing on what's within your locus of control while you develop strategies for expanding your sphere of influence. But you never build momentum. You never get started. You, ne- you never develop strength if you're always thinking about other people, right? And so if I live in a home where I'm committed to minimalist principles and everyone else is committed to maximalist principles... What's the space in that home that I have some influence over? And maybe it's just one desk. Despise not the day of small beginnings, right? That desk is going to be the best space in this house. It's going to be the most aesthetically pleasing. It's going to be the most minimalist space. And that's where I'm going to practice working it out. It's when we refuse to cherish and value those small opportunities that we lose the opportunity to be people of influence who can inspire others. That's what generates the curiosity. When you can focus on those small spaces you do have control over and go all in rather than fighting people over the whole house. They're never gonna take you seriously anyway. They don't wanna be converted. They don't wanna have to change every time you change. Let them see your character as you work it out within the context of what you have influence over. Speaking of influence, since we've been talking about social media clutter today. I've never been influenced by a social media influencer. Uh Uh-oh. However, there are a lot of influential people who have influenced me by not even trying to influence me. There are writers, there are people who are on social media with large followings who influence me without trying to force me into their point of view. And so when we're talking to Natish about being influential to the people with maximalist principles in her family, what does that mean? It means setting an example that other people are eager to follow because they see the benefits of simplifying and their benefits might be slightly different from yours, but it's so much more compelling. If I walk over and I say, wow, that desk seems so clean. It seems so calm. TK, where'd you get that from? Or, yeah. or who told you to, do, to, to organize like that? Then it opens up the door for the conversation about living simply, living with less. Yeah, absolutely, man. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to get Ryan Nicodemus on the phone for the lightning round. We'll be right back. Alabama, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Today's question question is from Missy. My mom is personally offended that I don't want to inherit everything she owns. I can't function with clutter. 
and I don't even know where I'd put it all. How can I avoid this burden? Well, joining us in the studio and on the phone. Go to the wide shot, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Too good. I can only imagine how handsome that cardboard cutout is. It's my good friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Hello, best friend. What's up, best friend? Hello, Nicodemus. <laughs> What's up, TK? What's up? What's up, team? Let's uh, let's talk to Missy here. Ryan is actually moving uh, this week, and so we got him on the phone. He'll When he joins us in the future, he'll have a pristine microphone. Everything will sound great, but we just wanted to get him on the phone today to help tackle Missy's question. And so, Ryan, I love what you sent me last night. You sent something pithy. What do you got for us? To be understood requires understanding. So, Missy, what's going on here is your mom, she's battling with something. And I don't know what, what that is exactly, but I know that it's much deeper than the stuff. And to really understand where she's coming from, you got to listen. And you have to listen with an open heart. And that takes a lot of attention and it takes a lot of uh, maybe even holding back some of the things you want to say. But I do promise you, Missy, if you go out of your way to understand your mother and her preferences, she might just start to go out of her way to understand what your desires are and what your preferences are. So try to understand your mother and maybe she'll understand you. Ryan, on the private podcast, we were just talking a moment ago about we didn't even use the acronym, but we were talking about tolerance versus acceptance and respect and appreciation. And it sounds to me like what you're talking about here is trying to understand the mother's point of view, which that helps us with compassion. By the way, if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, the reason everyone's laughing is because there's a cardboard cutout of Ryan in our studio. I It's hard for me to take him entirely seriously when he's talking because there's just this cardboard cutout. <laughs> or just short a dimension. <laughs> I think I might use a photo of you in the future uh, or just get you up on FaceTime. TK, you got anything pithy for us? Let's do it, man. Arguments about stuff are really arguments about stories. The reason you leave your clothes lying around on the floor is because you don't think about anybody but yourself. The reason you won't let me store my things in your garage is because you are insensitive to my needs. The reason you don't want to inherit my property is because you don't care about my legacy. Stuff is at the center, but it's always the story we're telling ourselves that make the stuff matter. So if you're having conflict with people that you love about stuff, back up and connect with them over the story. Express curiosity about the story. And what this will do is it will either give you new options for how you can fulfill the goal of the story, or it can give you a way of dealing with the stuff that you previously didn't imagine. And you get to be closer to them. I think about Harry Potter, where Harry says to Dumbledore, is this real or is it just in my head? And Dumbledore says, it's just in your head, but why would you think that makes it any less real? Yes, our stories are in our head, they're in our hearts, but our stories are real, they matter, and you'll never connect with the person or solve a problem with them if you don't learn how to be curious about the story they're telling themselves. And what you and Ryan are connecting here, at least what I'm connecting from the two of you, is there's something here about changing your story, but one of the best ways to change your story about someone else is to better understand where they're coming from. That's right. I got something pithy for you, Ryan, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit, You picked up every boulder you're carrying. And so there's something that's weighing you down right now. 
And there are going to be more things that are going to weigh you down. There's going to be a family member who tries to hold you. There's going to be a family member who tries to hand you one of their boulders and say, here, you hold this for me. And it's okay. You can pick that up if you want. But you don't have to hold on to their burdens. Their burdens don't need to become your burden. If someone is offended, Missy, because you're wearing a blue shirt, it is not your job to go out and buy a red shirt just to appease them. Because if you do that for one person, you're going to have to appease everyone. You're going to make someone upset. You're going to offend someone. If I was offended because Ryan's favorite color is green, I can't believe you. How dare your favorite color is green? Well, that's my problem. It's not Ryan's problem. Mm, so true, man. It's, uh, it's interesting how other people thrust their problems upon us, and we feel like we have to, we have to take them. But what you're highlighting here is we absolutely, absolutely do not have to pick up other people's problems. Mm. And every time I do pick up someone's problem, I get this sense of self-righteousness, right? Oh, look what I can, look what I can bear. Look what I can carry. Look how much I can handle. I must be a great human being. But the truth is I don't have to, to, to pick it up. Missy, your mom is personally offended that you don't want to inherit everything that she owns. It doesn't mean that she's wrong to want to give those things to you. It doesn't mean she's wrong for finding value in those things. But if you don't find value from it, you don't have to pick up those boulders and carry them forward. And one of the, way, one of the ways we pick up boulders is someone says, you don't love me. Well, yes, I do. Well, you just picked up that boulder, right? Mm. When they say you don't love me, you can say, why, why do you feel that way? Oof. That's not how mm. I want to make you feel. Why, why do you feel that way? Now you're not picking up the boulder. You're not a, you're not taking that story and combating with them over it. You're disarming them with curiosity. Yeah. I saw this video the other, the other day about, uh, oh, it was like one of the, the older mystics. Uh, I can't remember their name, but uh, the video was a man quoting him. And the mystic was talking about how when two hearts are very far apart, they tend to get louder with one another when they speak. They get in arguments more. They are in the same room, but there's this tension building that creates a really uh, uncomfortable conversation. And the reason being is, is because even though these two people, these two hearts are in the same room, they don't feel like they're being heard. So they feel like they have to talk extra loud. But the, the obverse is also true. When two hearts are close, you really don't have to talk that loud. In fact, I think about Mariah and I being in the same room and she can just give me a look and I know exactly what she's thinking. So Missy, I would encourage you to try to get your heart as close to your mother's heart as possible. And one of the ways you do that is exactly what TK was talking about, getting curious, asking questions instead of hurling accusations or being self-righteous or even making definitive statements in these instances is not necessarily helpful. But you can ask a question instead of saying, I'm not going to get any value from that. Don't try to give it to me. Is, huh? Well, why do you think I would get value from that? What do you think mm. I would enjoy about that? Mm. And it opens up the conversation in a way that is not judgmental. It's simply curious. 
Ryan, we're going to let you get back to moving. Hopefully, we can get you to call in next week. And um, we're going to say goodbye to your cardboard cutout as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Love y'all. Love you, brother. Love you, brother. All right. Bye. All right, let's check in with the Patreon a live stream in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Did you know that we have a newsletter? It's called The Simple Newsletter, and it's free. You can subscribe like hundreds of thousands of other people subscribe. Just go to www.theminimalists.email. And it'll take you right to our website. You can subscribe in there. We send you the podcast show notes delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. You get free videos and essays from The Minimalist, a bunch of free resources, free simple wallpapers for your phone or for your desktop computer. Free ebooks, including we got some free ebooks out there right now, but there's a new one that TK has been working on called Emotional Clutter. Ooh. A free ebook from TK Coleman. It's coming very soon. And you'll be the first to know if you sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.email. You know what else we won't send you? Spam, junk, or advertisements ever because advertisements suck. We're going to check in with our Patreon live stream. We switched this up recently. We're doing a monthly Zoom call with our patrons. Mm -mm. We just did our first one and our second one's coming up really soon. Uh, Ryan was there. TK was there. Alabama was there. And each month we're doing a Zoom call. Now, what we're doing is We'll talk a little bit with each other, but then we'll bring you on camera if you're interested in asking a question or having a discussion with us. Or let's say you're an introvert, you just want to be a fly on the wall. You can totally do that as well. You can turn off your camera and just be the voyeur who watches the Zoom call. And uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you are welcome. If you subscribe to the video version of the private podcast every month, and sometimes even more than once a month, we're going to hop on there, but it's the first Friday of every month. We're going to interact with you on Zoom. Oh man, it felt so festive, you know, to be able to do that, to, to be able to see the real-time interaction. Someone's asking something and you're able to ask them a clarification question or someone else is sharing a similar experience they've had in the chat. And there's some conversation and back and forth going on in the chat. And some people are making book recommendations, movie recommendations, and we're all laughing out here and talking. It felt like a true community experience. And uh, it's really awesome. And that was just the first one. I'm really looking to build on this, man. Well, we collected some questions that we weren't able to answer during the Zoom call itself. Malabama, you got one for us? Yeah, I have one here from Nastasia. She says, I use social media as a tool for visual inspiration around various topics and to connect with the bulk of my friends who live far away from me. Social media makes me feel a shallow sense of connection, but being a remote worker and in a little bit of an isolated neighborhood, sometimes I find myself turning to it more frequently because I am a visual person. While I prefer in-person connection, I find myself hopping online to get that fix. How can I get more meaningful connections out of social media? I love that you called social media a tool because that's exactly what it is. Just like we had this mallet in here earlier and we use that to fix things in the studio or I could use it to just bonk TK on the head and hurt him, <laughs> right? And how am I using social media? I'm using it as a tool. And I agree that it often creates 
shallow connections. We were addressing the question earlier about social media clutter. One of the things that I failed to say is I've gotten tremendous benefit from social media. So I don't think it's all good or all bad, just like I don't think that mallet is all good or bad. I can use a knife to cut a uh, through a mango or I can use it to stab someone. What am I doing with that? I could take a paint can and beautify my home or I could graffiti a local park. What am I using that tool? for. And this tool of social media has allowed me to connect with people. TK is how we originally connected was connecting via social media. And so I've connected with business partners, my friend TK, or my friend Colin Wright. We started a business with him back in uh, 2012 called Asymmetrical Press. If it weren't for social media, I would have never connected with him. The people who I first discovered minimalism through was because of social media. It was wonderful, but it was simply the on-ramp. I didn't mistake the on-ramp as the destination. It was an on-ramp to a deeper relationship. I've met friends, I've met lovers, I've met business partners, I've met employees, I've met collaborators, all because of social media as an on-ramp to a deeper relationship and also as a way to stay connected with people periodically to see what they're up to without it cluttering my life. No, I don't need to see every single social media post from every single one of my friends, but I am able to check in with them from time to time. And social media is a tool to do that. Absolutely. And one thing that social media can be very useful for is creating accountability for the things that you find to be life-giving. So one example is this emotional clutter announcement you just made. I made an agreement with Josh that I would submit a rough draft by this time. And I asked him, if I don't submit the rough draft, make fun of me on the podcast. And I know he's good enough of a friend to make good on that agreement. Uh, but, you know, we were able to have a positive announcement as a result of it. When, when, I, when I wanted to do a 365-day blogging challenge, I went on social media and I says, hey, everybody, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to write a blog post every single day for a year, even if I'm not completely happy with my writing. People got really excited for me, but it gave me a little boost of accountability. So one thing you could do is you could say, hey, I have a goal of going to a live event or a meetup once every week or once every other week or once every month. And after I do it, I'm gonna do a little write-up on social media where I show you a picture of it and I do a little tweet thread on what I liked about the event, something along those lines. And what you're talking about there is using social media as an augmentation for your real life, not replacing real life with the tool itself. Just because I wear a really nice tool belt, that doesn't make me a carpenter, right? <laughs> However, if I'm a carpenter, I might need, I probably need a tool belt, though I certainly need some tools in order to do my job. So the question that I first asked myself, we were talking about this earlier, does this add value and can I add value with it? And if the answer is yes, then I ask myself another question. Is this the best use of this time? Mm. Because... Yes, it might add some value, but just because it adds some value, and our good friend Cal Newport talks about this in his book, Digital Minimalism, which we'll put a link to that book in the show notes. And we had him on the podcast to talk about that as well. So actually, Professor Sean, if you could put a link to that episode where we, we did a whole episode with Cal Newport about digital minimalism, and he doesn't use social media at all. And that is his choice because he says, yes, I think I can get some value from it, but personally for him, it gets in the way. And as soon as mm. it gets in the way, it's clutter. 
How can I use social media as a tool that doesn't get in the way? And if the answer is I can't, then yes, it makes sense for me to let go of all social media. But if I can use social media as a tool, wonderful. If it enhances my life in some way, if it augments my experience or amplifies my life in a way that is value adding to me and continues to add value, because we got to think about that as well. Just because I got value from Twitter in 2008 doesn't mean I'm going to get the same value today. So I don't use social media personally very often, but for a business, we use it every single day through the minimalist. The way that we've used it through the minimalist has changed as well, because social media once upon a time was just text and maybe a, a picture here and there. And now it's all video and it's captions and we're much more selective about what we put out there because I too don't want to add to the noise, but I do want to use it to connect. It's interesting too, because this question is coming from someone who not only receives inspiration from other people's postings, but who gives inspiration and has a track record for that. We all have interesting, beautiful looking sketches of us that she created and posted on social media, adding value to other people's lives. It's like, how else can that be emulated or apply to other things that you enjoy doing, other people you meet, other places that you visit? How can you combine that world of art, real world experience so that you can come back to social media and say, here's something cool I discovered this week? Hey, Naz, thanks for your question. Malabama, we'll check back in with that Patreon live stream, that Zoom call. I know we got some more questions from that as well. But in the meantime, what else you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Paloma calling from New York. This is regarding a listener tip for the episode you did with Kristen Ziegler um, regarding a question from Trinity and how she can keep things uncluttered while decorating and making an impact with her own style. Um, I do organization and a little bit of home styling for people. And one of my recommendations is keep the purchases you make or the things that you choose to have in your home to be large in scale, as in a large mirror that is useful, very long, maybe luxurious curtains because those are also useful. And these sort of plants that you have, keep them large in scale because little trinkets and little tidbits that you think might add style feel um, cluttered after a while. So when you're considering pieces, always consider things that are larger in scale and take up more of a wall area and make a bigger impact. So one large painting to show your style versus several little ones. That's it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Welcome back, y'all. We're going to start this segment with a minimalist home tour. This is number 45 in our series. And joining us here in the studio is our good friend, Jordan No More. Hey. He's actually in front of the hey. camera this time. Weird. I, I feel uh, I'm like, it's like a whole new perspective on the studio. I've never <laughs> been back here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan is usually behind the cameras. He is graduating from the minimalists uh, soon, but I want to go through his home here. And so I broke in last night and <laughs> took some photos. <laughs> Actually, That's why he's graduating. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's more about the restraining order. Uh, <laughs> we're actually breaking it right now. <laughs> so Jordan, what I love about you is you are a minimalist with a maximalist love of color 
and miscellaneous eccentricities. And that is really typified by your home. Um, you and your girl, you bought a house last year and you've been making it your own. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, you'll be able to see some five of the pictures I think we have here on screen. We also sent out last week 16, you can find them over at patreon.com slash the minimalist as well, 16 photos from Jordan's home. Let's start with this. I'm going to have Jordan talk about it. I also want to talk about what you are working on next as you graduate from the minimalists. This is the first photo here. First thing I see is an orange wall. I see a tree stump. Did that grow through the floor? Yes. <laughs> What's going yeah. on here? So the orange wall is actually, uh, it ties in with the three little birds on top of the stump. Uh, it's the Armenian flag. So my girlfriend is Armenian, very uh, prideful of her heritage. And, you know, that we, we, it was one of the first walls I painted in the house was this wall, which is a giant Armenian flag. But the log is what's really uh, meaningful to me is that log was from a camping trip I did with my uh, father and my brother back in like 2000. And uh, we were in Oregon and there, a tree had fallen in front of this little road into the middle of nowhere. And uh, we had to drive around this giant tree. And uh, when we came back, uh, on, I was actually on a motorcycle. I came back. Um, you know, a little kid on a Honda 50 <laughs> and they, the, you know, park ranger had cut it into giant chunks. So me and my brother rolled a couple of those to camp wow. and we used it as a table for a week. And then we're like, I wonder if we can fit this in the car. And we brought it back <laughs> and me and my dad sanded it and lacquered it like with boat lacquer. That's why it's so shiny. Right. And I've had that in, uh, for years. It's gone with me everywhere I lived from Arizona to here, from, you know, Oregon. This is turning your experiences into an object that mm -hmm. the memories still aren't in the object, but it triggers those memories. I hear them come out of you as soon mm -hmm. as you start talking about it. Let's go to the next photo here. What is this? This is a custom-made pink chandelier. Custom? Uh, did you make this? I. You could say I made it. I mean, the chandelier itself, we we found on, uh, on OfferUp for like 50 bucks, which is like, way underpriced because chandeliers like that, that come apart, that have all of the little lights and everything are usually in the range of 300. Wow. So it was like a really awesome, like barn find type situation. And it was really ugly when you buy it initially. And, uh, and our whole theme of our house is the pink castle. Mm. So we want to make everything pink. Uh, so we have a very specific pink that we actually modeled after this brand Smeg. Okay. Uh, they have a pink line and we use their pink. We went to Home Depot with the swatch yeah. and it's like, this is the pink that the house is made of. So I took that apart. It was like 380 pieces and I laid it all out. I painted all the little pieces, put it all back together. And the most interesting part of this is that I had to use two painters poles duct taped together. It's really, really ghetto situation. Uh, and, and, and the hook at the end to once I installed the light, cause I didn't have a, the ceiling is three stories high. Mm -hmm. I didn't oh. have a scaffold. So I had to install the light up in the, in the loft and, and I used the hook to bring it back down and the chandelier fully built is like 65 pounds. So it was like wow. really hard to bring <laughs> it down. And, uh, and it was a, it was a very uh, interesting moment. Like we were all holding our breath until it like kind of stopped wiggling. Is this going to turn know? into Phantom of the Opera? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jordan, did you know you wanted to do that ahead of time or were you like, man, that's such a good deal. I'm just going to buy it, make it work. You know, 
how it works. Um, we knew when we bought the chandelier for sure. Yeah. We were looking for that. But how it works with Ani and I, my girlfriend, is we are really on the same wavelength creativ- creatively. Mm-hmm. So we end up like having these like, you know what we should do? I was thinking the same thing. Let's do it. And we're I like, love yeah! that. And it's super energy <laughs> until we figure it out. And then there's, you know, like the whole um, Seth Godin curve the dip, of the dip. The dip. Yeah, yeah, we always go through the dip. And uh, I'm usually the enthusiasm, enthusiasm <laughs> one. Like, it's going to be fine. We're going to be okay. And she's like, no, I hate this. And then, uh, and then we, we, we triumph through. And then you get things like this that it is great because we have a large window too. And all of our neighbors are real like kind of sticklers and they have real basic homes and they look in and they go, what the F? Yeah. <laughs> There's right. a giant pink chandelier in there. That's pretty awful. Let's yeah. go to the next photo here. Uh, this is, so yeah. this is like, if you pan out from where we were with that, the, the log table mm-hmm. here, explain to me what I'm looking at right now. So the most important thing here is we already explained the Armenian flag wall. Uh, but down in the bottom left corner, you're seeing a record shelf. And that record shelf is really important um, because Ani's father, uh, uh, rest in peace, he passed away about a year ago. Hmm. Um, it was the last thing him and I ever did together. Oh, wow. Uh, we built that from scratch. And it was mostly me because he was going through a lot of, of health problems. With, he had Parkinsonians, basically the, the same. It's not Parkinson's, but it's basically what Ali had. Is like mm. trauma to the head that caused Parkinson-like symptoms. So he's really smart, handy person, but he didn't can't do the thing. Uh, and I love carpentry, so I was like, I want to do something. I wanted to connect with him, so I was like, Bonnie sent me this record shelf that looked just like that, and she's like, I really want this, and I think I'm going to spend the money on it. It's three thousand mm. dollars, and I was like, I'm wood's kind of expensive right now, but I'm pretty sure I can get the wood for a lot less than three thousand dollars. So yes. all total, I think I spent about. $400 on all of that. And, and, uh, and it was just an awesome experience, uh, wow. of, you know, bonding. Yeah. There's a story behind it too. It's not just a piece of consumption. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to buy this thing, which is nothing wrong with that. But for you, you took it to another level. Now, not only did you create the thing that you wanted, but you also created it with someone with whom you'll always have this memory. Yeah. Let's look at another photo here. Oh, the pink kitchen. What am I looking <laughs> at here? So this was the, talk about the dip. This was the hardest experience of my life as a, a, in terms of craft. Mm. Like when I work on a video or I'm writing or I'm, you know, in any kind of creative rut, uh, it, I always think back to this and I'm like, it's, it's not that bad. Because <laughs> this kitchen, this house was one of those uh, rental properties where they would do the what's it called the the landlord special? Mm-hmm. Oh, they yeah. just paint it with the you know yeah. full full gloss paint, and all of the hinges and everything were like just glossed over. And uh, I'm not like super knowledgeable about carpentry, even though I love it. Um, so I got started in the heat of last summer. Uh, and our AC went out immediately when we moved in and I forgot to wear a mask. I was already kind of frustrated with the mask thing from COVID. So I was like, I'm just doing the work and I wasn't wearing a mask. And then also I wasn't using paint stripper and paint thinner. I was sanding and scraping 
<laughs> for days. Oh my. And I'm just covered in sawdust and I probably have cancer now. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is never going to end. Yeah, but at least you have a pink kitchen. Yeah. And then eventually there was the pink kitchen. And what the best compliment of this whole thing is that everyone that comes over that, you know, they're older than me, uh-huh. they always look and they go, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, who's your, who's your carpenter? Uh-huh. Who's your, who did oh. your kitchen? Oh, and I'm like, so oh, that's funny. He's, it's a really interesting uh, expert carpenter named Jordan Moore. <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, we got wow. one more here. And this is the living room. So tell me about uh, the, 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 the cowl pattern specifically. I was going to try and, and just beat around the bush and not explain that at all. <laughs> no, we can't walk away from that. Cause by the way, his blinds, which you can't see here when you close them, they're painted that same color. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Those yeah. same pattern. It, it, the, the idea from the start was we, we both, me and Ani, we both like detest the nineties, like homes, like, all of this weird kind of flat cookie cutter stuff that you they would put in these 90s houses. This is built in the 90s. And those blinds are just so ugly and we couldn't figure out what to do with them. And then I was just like, why don't we just like make them disappear? And uh, so we just painted some kind of design and uh, it was like all these complicated ideas. And then I was like, I know Ani loves cows. Her phone, uh, phone case is a cow print she's like, I was like, why don't we do that? She's like, that would be so hard. Like, don't we need to get stencils or something? I'm like, no, you just paint blobs on the wall. It's so easy. <laughs> and we just started painting blobs and then there you go. And then you pulled the blinds down and painted blobs yeah. on them as well. And, and if you look really closely, you'll notice that the blobs start to just end. They dissipate at the top. That's just because we have a step ladder and that's as high as I could get. And I'm just <laughs> like, all right, that's where they end. And they just kind of fizzle out. Yeah, that, that seems intentional though. So this is your living room. Yes. So uh, we have a pink couch. And, uh, and the TV, it's funny, the scale of this photo makes everything look a lot smaller. The TV is a very large TV. Obviously I'm a movie guy, so I like to watch movies. Uh, and it's above this totally worthless fireplace. Uh, and then there's an empty wall there to the right. And I have an idea for a modern art piece I'm going to build there. My idea was like, why don't I get an electric guitar, paint it gold, like real looking gold, cut the neck off. And make the neck like 10, 15 feet high and run strings and everything Mm. and have it on the wall and go all the way up because there's a really high ceiling. I I thought that would just look funny. It'd be like very Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Well, that's when I I see your house and well, not pictured here, but it'll probably be in the email or in the blog post that we have up there on Patreon. Mm. You have a yellow bathroom with a bunch of like Polaroids in there as well. And so what you've done in your home is you've truly made it yours. When we were talking about this earlier, do you like what you like or did someone else tell you to like it? I assure you, no one else told you to make your Mm -hmm. house like this and you've made it exactly like you. And so bravo for that. Now you're working on a few new projects as well. You can find everything Jordan No More at jordannomore.com. Yep. But uh, talk to me about the No More podcast. Yeah, so the idea was uh, recently I had been working with a friend who's a, a session drummer, a really talented guy named Nick Rossi. And he is um, he's, he's a friend of mine since elementary school. And we were talking about, he's like, I really want to like, it, you know, you know, up my social media presence and do things and make videos about stuff that I do. And then I was like, I'd love to do that too. Maybe we, you know, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You can help me make mine. Cause it's like, I don't really need anyone to help me shoot an amazing video. I just, it makes me feel comfortable that someone's making sure that the camera's running and not blurry. Yeah. 
like I was telling it's a whole other side story, but I was telling Danny yesterday about shooting these these videos I'm making and I'm, I had to reshoot them all because I was shooting them alone and they were just hair out of focus. And I'm like, mm. that's not good enough for me because I'm the camera guy. It can't be out of focus. So, um, but no, so working with, with Nick and we we're trying to figure out this strategy and it's just not working. Like nothing, it all seems forced to look straight into the camera and be like, oh, hi, I'm a YouTuber. It's like, it doesn't work. But then I was joking, we were actually sitting in here and I'm like, you know, it would be easy if we, it would just be so much easier if we could just sit around like a podcast and talk about our, our goals and our professions and our, you know, love of, of our craft. And then I just went, why don't we just do that? Like, it's not really a podcast. That's why I joked and called it an anti-podcast. It's like Mm. the point of it is to go, I call the podcast behind the scenes. I call it the well, we're going back to the well to get the gold, you know, the fish for, for some good, you know, um, material to talk about. Right. Um, and yeah, that's that's the the essence of it is it started with that and then it's kind of elaborated into obviously there my name, my my Instagram handle is like a double entendre, this whole idea of I'm Jordan no more. Like I'm I'm curious for knowledge. I want to know more. Obviously, there's my name in there, but also it represents an era change. Yes. There was a time in my life before Jordan No More. And then I started it and it's like Jordan no more. This is the new Jordan. Mm. So there was that element. And the podcast is no different. Is The podcast is the no more podcast, like my name and my handle. Like I have a thirst for knowledge. I want to learn more about photography, filmmaking, art in general. But I also, I, I don't like the idea of more another podcast. So no more podcasts. That's the idea. It's, I, it, I love it. And it's not a podcast. The tagline you said, because the world doesn't need another podcast. Exactly. <laughs> the irony of this, remember when Matt Diavella first started his podcast way back in the day, TK, yeah. you were on, it was called The Ground Up Show. And I was, at the time he was asking about names. I was like, man, just call it because the world needs another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up going with The Ground Up Show. But Jordan, I love this concept because it's, a triple entendre, a quadruple entendre. It's Jordan no more, the thirst for knowledge. I'm also not the former version of myself, but now it's the no more podcast, which you can find, by the way, patreon.com slash no more podcasts. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. $1 a month he charged, no matter how much you, uh, how much you are consuming of his creations, $1 a month. Uh, I say get in on that now before I convince him to raise the price <laughs> to at least two or three or $5 a month, because Jordan is a super talented, skilled filmmaker. And uh, we've worked together now for just over five years. I'm grateful for the time we've spent together, brother. Likewise. Yeah. yeah. So jordannomore.com. You can follow him on Instagram as well, at jordannomore. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Appreciate Ladies and gentlemen, Jordan No More. Yes, sir. All right, get out of here. Jordan No More. <laughs> We're going to talk about a ball. I want to talk to you about in a moment. But first, Alabama, do we have anything from the Patreon Zoom we didn't get to last time? I got one more for you. This one is from Laura. She says, as a journalist, part of my work is to stay aware of what is going on in the world, which keeps me tethered to my phone longer than I want to be. I search for topics everywhere, memes, Facebook, news feeds, etc., because the next new topic can pop up anywhere. How can I manage my relationship with social media as someone who needs to engage with it for work? That's a very tempting 
story to tell ourselves that I must have it and therefore I can't get rid of it, right? Mm. And I get it. Like in order to get down here from Ojai, I must have a car. That's the story that I tell myself now. Or I could reconstitute everything I'm doing to make it so I don't have a car and I'm doing the things from Ojai. But the best version of doing what we're doing requires me to have a car. However, it doesn't require that I have seven cars, right? And what I would say to Laura is you don't need seven different social media networks. What's the one you get the most value from? And then what are the boundaries I can set up around that? Maybe it's Twitter for you. As a journalist, a lot of journalists are on Twitter. And then what's your boundary? Well, I'm going to check it once in the morning. I'm going to check it once in the evening. And I'll check it midday on Wednesdays and Fridays or whatever those boundaries are for you. And then having a separate device can be a way to set up those boundaries as well so that you can check in when you want to check in, but it's not following you around and constantly checking in with you. That's right. I heard two things in that question. One is I need to do this for work, but two, I'm doing it more than I want to do it. Mm -hmm. So here's my little TK's argument against FOMO. Either there's always something going on or there isn't always something going on. If there's always something going on, then you can afford to tune out because there's always something going on when you come back. If there isn't always something going on, then you can afford to tune out because there isn't always something going on that you need to be preoccupied with. So either way, you can afford to tune out. It's just like saying, hey, my family loves watching movies, so we're going to do Friday night movie night with the kids. That's awesome. But make it a thing. Make it Friday night movie night with the kids. Same way with social media. If you need to search for stories, have a set time where you're going to dedicate yourself to doing that. And then Tune out and go do something else that brings you joy because you get to bring that energy back to the stories that you're sharing with people. I've got a talk about a bolt for you here, TK. Luxury goods are a scam. Mm. Hmm. The concept of luxury was created to get poor people to waste their money. Take a look at this video. Luxury is a concept for poor people to aspire to. Luxury, past a certain point of wealth, the clients are actually post-luxury. Explain and to me post-luxury. So if I just made enough money to buy a Ferrari, I might go buy a Ferrari. But if I'm worth enough money to buy Ferrari, like the entire corporation, I don't really care whether or not I drive a Ferrari because I'm worth $100 billion. It's irrelevant whether or not I'm driving a Ferrari, right? And so these people are literally post-luxury. There's a third option here. You can become post-luxury or you can become pre-luxury. What he's talking about is a subset of people who have so much money that they've realized, I don't need the luxury goods that I aspired to acquire so I could signal my wealth. Because as soon as you have the wealth, you don't need to signal it. Or you can be like me. You can be pre-luxury. <laughs> What's pre-luxury? How would you define it? For me, I'm pre-luxury in the sense that I've also realized that those luxury goods don't get me what I thought they were going to get me. I'm post-luxury in the sense that I've had luxury goods before. I've had a luxury car. I've actually had three different luxury cars back in my corporate days. I don't anymore because I realize that my Toyota gets me everything that I wanted out of that and in fact gets me more because I don't have to worry about the item getting stolen as much. I don't have to worry about it getting damaged. And so I'm not worrying about the luxury good either. I'm pre-luxury in the sense that I've opted out of luxury. It doesn't mean I'm against nice things. That's different. Mm -hmm. 
what Jordan did with his home is create a beautiful, really nice chandelier. Now, he didn't go to the Balenciaga store and buy a chandelier, right? Or to Supreme and get the limited edition Supreme chandelier. No, what he did is he created something that is beautiful. It's a nice thing. So I own nice things. No problem with that. But there's no logo or status or signaling involved with my decision-making process for buying a thing. Now, I'm not saying that my things don't signal something. They might. I'm simply not trying to signal with my consumption. Yep. Uh, The way you describe pre-luxury corresponds very well with what I like to call FU minimalism. And we've talked about that before. There's FU money. I've got so much money that I can afford to opt out of the games you play and I don't need those luxury goods. But then FU minimalism is a way of saying, I have so successfully extricated myself from needing to have all the things that society tells me I need to have in order to be a player that I can say no to things that I don't want, to things that hold me down. And both of those have their place. Both of those are good. But FU minimalism is the thing that we often don't talk about or think about. Yeah, because if you don't need the luxury good, in fact, now, if someone were to hand me the keys to a luxury good, you know, the the Ferrari or the Lamborghini, I, I don't want it. I don't want to be caught in it. Because for me, it's like, it also signals that I'm trying to signal something. And I also don't want to be perceived as the person who's trying to signal something. Now, here's the truth. If I actually got value in a Ferrari and was a enthusiast, I don't see anything wrong with that if I can afford it. I'm not going to go into debt for something like that. But I use a car to get from point A to point B. I use a t-shirt to cover up my musculature. (laughs) And I don't need to signal to someone with those material goods. And in fact, it's a little embarrassing to me now to say, look at me, look at me, to be attention-seeking with my goods. Now, if what I do gets someone's attention, fine, I'm not trying to do that. But if the purpose of consuming something, buying something, or even creating something is merely to get the attention of other people, it just doesn't feel right to me personally. Yeah, with some luxuries, you're buying the right to say, I play games that other people can't afford to play, and that accords me a level of status that everyone doesn't have. Um, And some luxury goods are things that we call luxury simply because we cannot fathom investing that much money in it, although someone else derives value from it. But it's not about the item. It's about the joy that you feel and the joy that you create. So if Professor Sean was given a Lamborghini, I honestly believe that he would sell it and then take that money to buy books and pens that no one else would know about. It would be a terrible signal, but he would be so happy with it. So it's not about the stuff. It's about the joy. Yeah, I think that's right. And he can own a luxury pen that isn't going to signal anything to anyone except someone who's truly interested in writing utensils, right? But the reason he would buy that wouldn't be to say, look at me, I'm a writer. He's a writer without any of those pens. In fact, most of the things he's ever written have, have been on a computer. He didn't require a, a pen yeah. in order to pen those stories or novels or uh, whatever he is writing. And yet he enjoys the pens and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with enjoying a luxury good. In fact, there's nothing even wrong with signaling, but 
if I'm doing the signaling because I think it's going to gain the acceptance of other people, man, there are much better ways for me to gain the acceptance and get you to love me for me than get you to love me because of the car I drive or the home that I live in. That's right, man. We got another talk aboutable here. TK, you're a positive guy. Am I? But I want you to beware of toxic positivity. (laughs) (laughs) This is something we need to talk about. Let's take a look at this video. I do my best to be positive. Sounds exhausting, though. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Do you ever just allow yourself to feel the hurt? I waver. If anything, I feel like I have to, like, fight it off and keep positive and focus. It's a battle. What if you didn't fight it off? Mm. If you had a child and your child came to you hurt, really hurt, would you look at your child and say, put a smile on that face and think positive thoughts? No. So why are you doing that to you? I don't do that all the time, but... You're doing it right now? You're right. You're being so cruel to you. Why would you do that? If you wouldn't do it to a kid, why are you doing it to you? So TK, let's talk about this. So good. Sometimes we can be cruel to ourselves through this idea of, I should be optimistic. I should be positive. That's right. We did an entire episode on this, maybe a few years back, called Positive Thinking, that I would encourage everyone to go listen to. But yeah, man, I I gave up positive thinking a long time ago, not because I exchanged it for negative thinking, but rather I let them both go in exchange for possibility thinking, being Mm. open. You know, I kind of think of positive thinking in terms of imagine someone walking around with a, a weight in their right hand and you see them hunched over like this because they're holding a weight. And then you try to give them another weight to balance it out so they can stand up straight. Well, I guess that's one way to stand up straight. But another way is you can just drop that other weight and you don't need anything to balance that out. In a similar way, so many people try to use positive thinking to overcome negative thoughts. And I say, how about a little philosophical thinking where we question all of the assumptions that we're making and we let go of all of these unnecessary beliefs and we're just open to possibility, you know? Um, so anyway, I, I I love that message that he said to her, you know, this idea of, of I'm going to force myself to smile about things that I'm not happy with. It's like taking perfume and just spraying dung in order to make it smell better. No, it's still gross. It still stinks. You still need to get it out of the house. Spraying it with perfume isn't going to make it better. That's what so much of what gets called positive thinking really is. Michelle has an amass it or trash it item for us. She even sent in a picture here. Alabama, can you pull up that picture so that the folks can see it? Uh, What did Michelle have to say about these tickets that I'm looking at a picture of right now? I decided to spring clean, purge, and minimize this past weekend, and I came across my ticket stub from when I saw you guys speak a few years back. Is this a reminder that I'm enhancing my life by decluttering, Or was this just an ironic moment because I've saved so many ticket stubs? As far as what to do with it, would you treat ticket stubs like you do photos and scan them to your computer? Or are they small enough to make them harmless as far as clutter is concerned? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this with autographed items as well. It's probably harmless if it's harmless to you, right? And so like, here's the thing. If this isn't bothering you, then yeah, having a file folder with the tickets that you've collected over the years, or even better, finding a creative way to display them, like what Jordan has done in his home. He has all kinds of things displayed 
but in an intentional way, as opposed to just essentially making your file cabinet a wastebasket for old memories. That's quite often what we do. I'll just shove this in here and deal with it later. I'm going to punish my future self today because I don't want to sort this out right now. And here's why that becomes a problem. Not because you have to deal with it someday. Yeah, that's part of the problem. But also it weighs on you. Oh, yeah, I've been meaning to clean that out. Oh, yeah, I've been meaning to sort through that. We did a whole episode on paper clutter. Put a link to that in the show notes. But then we also did an episode recently about hobby clutter, episode 399. And maybe your hobby going out to concerts and you have all these ticket stubs. You know, it'd be really cool if I was a fan of The Minimalists and not one of The Minimalists, I would take these tickets and I would shred them and then I would frame them shredded yeah. as like this memorial to letting go. I'm willing to let go of anything. I can shred anything. I can l- get rid of anything. I can let it go, but also it's okay to hold on to it as a trigger for this memorable experience. If you enjoyed the experience, nothing wrong with holding on to a ticket. There's also nothing wrong with letting it go if it's weighing you down. That's right. You can let go of the thing or you can let go of the idea that it's wrong to hold on to the thing if it brings you joy. I saw this meme of somebody like shopping at a Target and there was a security guy walking past and the meme said something like, this is me trying to act like I'm not stealing anything because I'm really not stealing anything. And it just captured this moment that I I think a lot of us can identify with where you know you're fine. You're not doing anything wrong, but you're so worried about someone else thinking that you're doing something wrong that you adjust yourself and you begin to act unnaturally and you take on the appearance of someone that's doing something wrong. But when you take other people out of the equation and you say, I'm fine as I am with what brings me joy, then you're free. And if someone else looks at you like you're doing something wrong, you don't have to opt into their story. That's their story, their problem. So amass it or trash it, yes, especially if you can do something intentional with this, you want to display them, or if you feel like it enhances your life in some way, go ahead and hold on to it. If it's getting in the way, and I suspect because you're writing in and asking about this, maybe it's become a bit of a burden. It's also okay to trash it, to let it go. No problem with that at all. You can send us your ambassador trash it, your obsolete objects, your sucky ads, and your home tour photos to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let's read some more about less. Alabama, Professor Sean sent me this article. It's from The Verve, I believe. The Verge. Verge. Yes. Mm. It's called Uber's About to Stick Video Ads in Its Cars, Apps, and Anywhere Else It Can. So this is a combined segment. Our More About Less segment, we read an article, we use it as a jump off point to discuss something about letting go. But this is also a sucky ad. I mean, one of the suckiest ads. And we keep coming across suckier and suckier ads. We're walking into a world that is full of sucky ads. And this is no exception. Alabama, what do you got? Uber is about to start displaying video ads across its various service apps, including Uber Eats, Drizzly, an Uber-owned alcohol delivery platform, and its namesake ride-hailing app. Announced via a press release on Thursday, full-length video ads which will play on the main Uber app while users wait for their taxi to arrive will begin rolling out to users in the U.S., quote, over the coming weeks. Uber hopes to entice advertisers with what it knows about its users. We have two minutes of your attention. We know where you are. We know where you're going to. 
and we know what you have eaten, says Uber ad exec Mark Grether to the Wall Street Journal. Pause there. <laughs> That's so creepy. How creepy and dystopian is that? Imagine if an ad company came to you. I mean, this is like truth in advertising. They said the quiet part out loud. TK, we know where you've been. We know what you've eaten. And then the music cues. He knows when you are sleeping. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> and it's Freddie trying to sell you some uh, McDonald's. Um, so that's the problem I have here is they know you're already in the app. They know where you've been. They know what you're going to be driving past. So, yes, the targeted ads, uh, to be frank, sometimes targeted ads can be better than or more preferable than, you know, seeing an ad for an ambulance chaser. But also they can be worse in another sense that they can create an impulse within you. I didn't know I needed that thing. But now that I've seen the ad, the ad on my Uber app, I feel incomplete without it. And so they're going to get really good at making you feel incomplete, especially with something like Uber, because they know where you've been. They know where you're going. They know your eating habits. They know your patterns. They know your lifestyle. And they can target things specifically to you to disrupt your psychology, to make you feel inadequate. And the only way to once again feel adequate, at least for a moment, is to buy this thing we're trying to sell to you. Mm. They sound so confident, Josh, but I smell fear. Mm. People fight the hardest for attention when they feel like they're not getting it. And the advertisers are desperate. They can feel the world changing. All the legacy players are a little nervous. Technology is changing. Human behavior is changing. People that have dominated the space for 10 years, 20 years, don't know if they can adapt fast enough to continue surviving and making money off it. Everybody's making adjustments. Google's making adjustments. How do we adapt to chat GPT or whatever it is? And now the advertisers are like, hey, look at me. I'm over here. I'm over here. They're desperate. They're scared because they can see that people are working really hard to opt out whenever they get the chance. Oh, yeah, I'll pay an extra $5 a month if I don't have to look at those commercials. I'll figure out a way to watch my YouTube videos and ignore the ads and get a sense of how long they play before I can skip them. People are trying very hard to avoid them. And the advertisers are desperate. And they're trying to find their way into every nook and cranny. We want to be at the urinals. Yes. Because we need you thinking about us. They're desperate. I was at a concert recently, at the National, and it was at the Greek Theater here in yeah. Los Angeles. And I walked into the bathroom mm, mm, mm. during a break. And the, at the Greek Theater, they have this long line of urinals. I mean, it's <laughs> infinite. Yeah. And I look all the way down and it's all packed. Every urinal is full and every man to a T is looking at their phone. <laughs> and of course, what are they doing when they're looking at a phone? They're usually scrolling social media, which is what? Ad-supported. It is run by advertisements. And I think you bring up a really good point here, TK. What's happening is we are finding ways to opt out whenever we can. You, ne you hear about ad blockers. You never hear about ad adders. No one's like, injecting more advertisements into their day, seeking out more ads, right? And the reason that we don't is because they're an interruption. Advertisements are, by definition, a type of clutter because we didn't seek them out. We didn't want them. I didn't ask you to advertise your product or service to me. At best, I tolerate it and I've learned to accept it because it's an everyday part of life. But of course, what happens? 
If you tolerate something long enough, you're actually asking for more of it. The best thing mm-hmm. you can do is support your favorite creators and support them directly. A musician who makes music, you go to their shows, you purchase their merchandise that you're going to wear, whatever you want to do to support the musician. So they're not doing something that is advertisement-based. One of my favorite mm. hip-hop songs of all time is a song. In fact, I'm going to switch up our added value segment this week. There's a song from Common Sense. He's just known as Common now from TK's hometown of Chicago. In 1994, he had a song come out called I Used to Love Her. And at first, you think it's a song about a girl. Spoiler alert, it's a song about hip-hop. It's a song about hip-hop music. And what he's saying is like, oh, when she began to sell out, when she became used in advertisements... So the song you hear playing in the background right now, this is I Used to Love Her from Common. And the irony of this is I now see Common in what? In commercials. And it's one of the biggest disappointments of my life because he made one of the, in my opinion, is the top five hip hop song of all time with this song. And it's about bucking the status quo. It's about not becoming commercial. And there's a line in the song when he talks about what? He says that she always talks about how real she is, but really she was the realest before she got in the showbiz. And I can say the same thing about Common now. Like his music was the realest and it came from this beautiful place. But how enticing are the advertisements? How enticing is it to turn on the faucet, right? Oh, it's just one minor indiscretion. But you would have never on that album You have never heard that album be interrupted by advertisements. You don't go from track four to track five being interrupted with a a Microsoft commercial. Mm. You know, right now, advertising is the only way in human vocabulary for something to be delivered free. By offering up ourselves as the product to be consumed, we get in exchange for that, a free TV show, a free song, or whatever it may be. And I think the vocabulary is starting to expand and they're filling it. We're developing new ideas for how to deliver products and services and I'm, I'm excited about it. And one of the things that gives me hope is that whenever we can afford to, we always pay to opt out of advertising. And whenever you wanna shove advertisements in our face, we demand that you pay us in the form of lowering the price or giving it to us for free. There is no one who wouldn't complain if you charged a premium price and still shoved ads in their faces. They would say, what am I paying for? Yeah, and I have to ask the same thing. What am I paying with my attention for? Because yes, you can pay money. That's a renewable resource. I'll never get back my time and attention that you're wasting with these advertisements. Enjoy the song from Common. This is I Used to Love Her. That's our Maximal episode for today. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop to the beat, y'all, and you don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop. But one, two, 
y'all, it don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, it don't stop. Until the beat comes, says to be the short shot. Come on, come I met on. this girl when I was 10 years old. And what I love most, she had so much soul. She was old school, and I was just a shorty, never knew. Throughout my life, she would be there for me or the regular. Not a church girl, she was secular. Not about the money, those stuff was my checker, but I respected her. She hit me in the heart. A few New York aunts had dinner in the park. But she was there for me, and I was there for her. Pull out a chair for her, turn on the air for her, and just cool out. Cool out and listen to her. Sitting on bone, wishing that I could do eventually. If it was meant to be, then it would be because we related physically and mentally. And she was fun then. I'd be geeked when she come around. Slim was fresh, Joe, when she was underground. Original, pure, untapped, a down sister. Who I tell you, I miss her. Uh, yes, yes, y'all. If you don't stop, to the beat, y'all. If you don't stop, uh, yes, yes, y'all. If you don't stop, uh, one, two, y'all. If you don't stop, uh, yes, yes, y'all. If you don't stop, a confidence, y'all. If you don't stop, uh, yes, yes, y'all. If you don't stop, you act, yo. We gotta be the short shot. Now periodically, I would see old girl at the club, sit at the house party. She didn't have a body, but she started getting thick quick. Did a couple of videos and. Came Afrocentric. Out goes the weave, in goes the braised bees medallion. She was on that tip about stopping the violence. About my people, she was teaching me by not preaching to me, but speaking to me in a method that was leisurely. So easily I approach. She dug my rap, that's how we got close. But then she broke to the West Coast, and I was cool. Cause around the same time, I went away to school, and I'm a man dub expanded. So why should I stand in her way? She probably get her money in LA, and she did stud. She got big pub, but what? was foul, she said that the pro-black was going out of style, she said Afrocentricity was of the past well, she got in the R&B, hip-hop, space and jazz, now black music is black music and it's all good, I wasn't salty she was with the boys in the hood cause I was new for her, she was becoming well-rounded I thought it was dope how she was on that freestyle, uh, just having fun not worried about anyone and you can tell by how her he's hung but yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop, to the beat, y'all don't stop, yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop, one, two, y'all, if you don't stop, yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop, until the beat calm, gotta be the short shot, yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop, check it on, check it, I might have failed to mention that this chick was creative Once the man got to her, he altered her native Told her if she got an image and a gimmick, then she can make money And she did it like a dummy Now I see her in commercials, she's universal She used to only swing it with the inner city circle Now she be in the burbs looking rocky, dressing hippie And on some dumb skill when she comes to the city Talking about popping clocks, serving rocks and hitting switches now she's a gangster, rolling with gangster bitches. Always smoking blunts and getting drunk. Telling me sad stories. Now she only fucks with the funk. Stressing how hardcore and real she is. She was really the realest before she got into showbiz. I did her. Not just to say I did it, but I'm committed. But so many niggas did it that she's just not the same. Letting all these goofies do her. I see her slamming her and taking her to the sewer. But I'ma take her back, hoping that this don't stop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. To the beat, y'all, if you don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. The mainframe, yo, they gotta be the short shot. Yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. To the beat, y'all, if you don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. A one-two consensus is going to drop. Ha 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 ha. Uh, uh, I used to love her. Uh, 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 uh.
I used to love her, uh, 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 I used to love her, uh, uh.